It's time for the 7th Avenue Project, and you can find the latest shows, information, and more at 7thAvenueProject.com. And welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. If you listen much to this program, you know we like science and you know we like music. So for today's show, we've got a twofer. Dan Levitin is a musician, an erstwhile punk rocker, a record producer, and a neuroscientist. He's a professor in the psychology of music at McGill University in Montreal. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Your Brain on Music, The Science of an Obsession. In this interview from 2007, we spent a lot of time indulging in that obsession. Dan Levitin, welcome. Hi. This neuroscience business seems to be pretty hot right now. And it neuroscience is, yeah. and music together, boy. Well, it's an interesting observation. Um, neuroscience has been around for, you know, hundreds of years. The thing that's really changed uh, is just in the last 20 years, we've had a technology that allows us to essentially take pictures of the brain in action rather than, you know, not doing anything. We used to be able to take fancy x-rays and, and measure structures in the brain uh, or put electrodes in the brain, which is a little invasive. Uh, but now, using fMRI and PET, we can actually see which parts of the brain are active when you're engaged in certain mental operations, and that's created a real revolution. Yeah, you're talking about the uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging and positron yep. emission tomography, two ways of, of scanning the brain. Yeah seeing what areas in the brain are active, yeah. getting pretty pictures. Well, it is a great technology, but it doesn't solve every problem. There are, it rests on a number of assumptions that aren't proven. Uh, and to a large degree, although I'm part of this fMRI neuroimaging revolution, part of it meaning that I, I publish papers using the technology, I train doctoral students to use it, I, I have some reservations about it. I'm not convinced that we're going to learn as much as we think we are by knowing where something is going on in the brain. By analogy, suppose you wanted to know how your word processor works on your computer or how your browser works. If you open up the computer and you pull out the circuit board, figuring out where the different resistors and capacitors are, I don't know how much you're going to learn about how the web browser works because that's instantiated in software. I mean, there's a certain amount you can learn. I mean, occasionally you get lucky in neuroscience and you learn something from the what. As Maxwell Smart used to say, if only we know what, then we can figure out where, <laughs> or vice versa. So if we had you in an fMRI machine right now, and we played this music, what do you think it would show us? Well, <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> if you had me in there, uh, I wrote this song, so um, <laughs> I'd probably activate differently to it than other people would. But I think people who like this song are going to break it up into different components. There's rhythm, there's melody, there's some harmony, and timbre, the sound of different instruments. There's piano, bass, vibraphone. And different parts of the brain process all these different aspects of music in different ways. So it all comes together later. When we say later, we mean like 20 milliseconds later, but there are these distinct stages of processing. One piece of evidence we have that 
they're distinct is that we've seen patients with brain damage and they can lose one of these processing units while the others stay online. They can lose the ability to track the rhythm of something while still tracking the melody and the harmony or vice versa. Is it just a bunch of components then for each of the basic building blocks of music? It begins that way. Uh, it, it begins with your brain extracting information about rhythm, pitch, chords, timbre, contour, whether the melody is going up or down. And then it all comes together later as a final impression. We should um, give the audience a clue about that song, the tune we were just listening to. Uh, I, well, I wrote that song um, really as a way to comfort myself during a stressful week in my life. All in one week, my wife left me and my dog died. And I, <laughs> I almost was thinking, gee, if I was living in Nashville or South Texas and this was a country song, you know, my truck would get you know banged up. But um, I actually find the song kind of comforting and still. Do you as a neuropsychologist, and is that a good term for you, Dan? Well, we academicians are famous for making subtle distinctions that no one in the world cares about. And here's one of them. Neuropsychologists generally are people who see patients. Oh, I see. Neuroscientists. Well, cognitive psychologist? Yeah, or a cognitive neuroscientist. All right. Either one. For you as a cognitive neuroscientist. Or you can call me a complete bore or a pompous ass or... <laughs> I won't do so, at least not here. Not to my face. Afterwards. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but do you have any insight as to why sad music is strangely consoling? I do. Uh, I think the reason is, and uh, you know, this is generalization, doesn't apply to everybody or to every case. But in general, when we're sad... We also feel misunderstood. We feel as though we're alone in, our, in this state and that nobody understands us. And the last thing we want is somebody to come by and say, what the hell's the matter with you? You've you got no reason to be depressed. You should, you know, there's people starving in Asia. Look how good you have it. You know, you want to punch somebody like that in the face because they really don't understand you. Uh, on the other hand, if you put on a sad song, you suddenly are no longer alone at the edge of the cliff. There's somebody there with you. And somebody who is giving voice or words to some of the feelings that you find a hard time articulating. You've got a friend now at the edge of the cliff. And what's more, it's this friend has somehow turned this miserable experience into a beautiful work of art. Ennobled it. Right. Ennobled it. And in the end, whether you're aware of this consciously or not, you find it somewhat inspiring and uplifting, usually. That's why sad songs say so much. I'd like to, to back up a bit and pick up where you started a moment ago uh, and look at just exactly the kind of processing that occurs step by step, as far as we know, when we listen to music. And I'd like to see how far we've come since about 1928, when Aldous Huxley wrote this passage in his novel Point Counterpoint. Yeah. Uh, do you know where I'm going? I know going? the book, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he has a character named Lord Edwards who's yeah. sitting in his apartment and he overhears some uh, string music coming from a nearby concert hall. And we should mention this is before Aldous took mescaline. Yes. So the doors of perception hadn't yet been opened. But he writes, The shaking air rattled Lord Edward's membrana tympane. Did I say that right? Sure. Tympanic membrane. Tympanic membrane. His eardrum. Yep. The interlocked malleus, incus, and stirrup bones were set in motion so as to agitate the membrane of the oval window and raise an infinitesimal storm in the fluid of the labyrinth. The hairy endings of the auditory nerve shuddered like weeds in a rough sea. A vast number of obscure miracles were performed in the brain, 
and Lord Edwards ecstatically whispered, Bach. <laughs> now, what do that. we know about those obscure miracles that happened beyond the inner ear where uh, Huxley left off? Well, if you'll indulge me and let me back up a bit, yeah. uh, everything that he says is right. I mean, none of that's been contradicted, which is ex- extraordinary because after 80 years, usually, you know, everything we thought we knew 80 years ago isn't true. But if you let me back up, I th- just I want to call attention to something that I think most people don't realize. If you're sitting out in a sunny, you know, in a sunny afternoon, and you hear the birds chirp and the waves crashing, uh, you might hear a foghorn, you might hear cars, children playing, cars whizzing by, and you're able to distinguish those different elements. Or if you're sitting in the symphony and you can pick out the oboe as distinct from the French horn or the violins or the timpanis, all of that information is coming to you from just your eardrum wiggling in and out. One-dimensional information. Essentially, yes. And that's extraordinary. I mean, most of us don't stop and reflect on that. Now, in fact, most of us have two eardrums wiggling in and out, which helps a bit. But fundamentally, it's this pattern of wiggling that reveals all of the nuance that can make you cry from tears of joy or, for that matter, tears of boredom if the performance is bad. Uh, An analogy that my mentor, Al Bregman, makes is that suppose you're out here at the pier... And you take a stick and you dig a little inlet in the water and you stick a little cork on it. Uh, Now, you do the same thing for a second little inlet, second cork. You turn your back to the ocean. Now, just by looking at the bobbing up and down of the corks, would you be able to tell me how many boats are out there, what direction (laughs) they're traveling, if there are any ducks there, you know, What's going on? Probably not. But that's what essentially what we're doing with auditory information. Yeah, and it's it's astonishing. And Aldous really hit the nail on the head with you know the chain of processes. Although he only takes it up through the inner ear. What, and and what then ha- he punts, says obscure miracles. Right, and we know something about uh, some of those miracles are less obscure, and some remain equally as obscure. Where the signal goes from the ear is to a kind of a way station. Uh, called the inferior colliculus, and then some of the information gets passed uh, directly to the brainstem and the pons, probably part of an ancient startle reflex, so that if I go like this, you know, you shake a little bit, you're you're ready to move. Uh, A sudden punctuated burst of air molecules moving typically indicates something moving in the environment. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about sound perception, auditory perception as opposed to visual, is that it works in the dark. Mm-hmm. It works when your eyes are closed. It works around corners. So if a boulder is tumbling your way or a lion is coming your way, you're going to hear it. It's usually sudden and you startle. But at the higher cognitive level... So it's level, connected to our alarm system is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which may be one of the reasons why music can give us goosebumps it, because of its attachment to this alarm system which affects our heart rate, our breathing, and our pulse and and sweating and so on. Um, It may be why the hair stands up on the back of your neck Mm. when Carlos Santana plays that perfect note. But the higher cognitive stuff, as soon as it hits the the brain, the very one of the first places it hits in the cortex, the seat of higher thought, is what we call auditory cortex, little parts that coincidentally are right behind your ears on the side, in your temporal cortex, behind your temples. Uh, And from there, the signal gets shunted out to a bunch of different specialized Processing units for pitch versus rhythm versus timbre, processed in different parts of the brain, comes together later. There's also another part of the brain that I've been studying for a decade or more, 
with my colleague just up the road, Vinod Menon, at Stanford Medical School. It's a tiny little part of the brain that's about the size of your pinky, actually smaller. It's from, you know, one of the knuckles of your pinky up to the tip is how big it is. And it goes by the rather inelegant name of Broadman Area 47. Uh, it's sort of like those cities where the roads are like 112th Avenue, right? I mean, they couldn't think of a better name. Vinod and I uh, think that this part of the brain is largely responsible for so much of musical pleasure because it's the part of the brain that's engaged in trying to guess what's going to come next in a musical sequence. Even if you're not a musician, and even if you're not aware that you're doing it, when you hear music, you're trying to figure out what's going to come next, just as you do with speech. It's unconscious, but this is the part that a skillful composer can reward or maybe fool a little bit. So so at the point when uh, the signal reaches my Broadman area 47 and my brain has its way with it, is that when I say Bach? Well, interestingly, no, uh, because Broadman area 47 is engaged in what we call processes of expectation or tracking of structure. The part of you that says Bach is a part of you that is taking the melody and rhythm and you know searching your memory banks in the hippocampus, probably. An area and, that's... Uh, very important in memory formation. Right. And uh, at least if the memory isn't stored there, the index, as we like to think of it, is there, probably. And you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, you know, what is this? What is this? Oh, there it is. I found it. It's Bach or it's Vivaldi or, oops, my mistake. It's Brittany. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> and this is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. The show is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today, an interview from 2007 with neuroscientist and musician Dan Levitin. We're talking about your brain on music. So you mentioned Bach versus Britney. Uh, and obviously, one is heaven to some people and hell to the other. Uh, and I won't say who, who right. which is which. Well, there's people on both sides. But you've studied musical taste. You, yeah. you actually study it in your lab. Yeah. What have you learned about it? Well, um, there are a number of things, but um, just to pick up the story with Broadman 47, which I think is interesting. This little pinky-like area of the yeah, brain. Uh, which is behind the eyes on both sides, uh, tracking structure in speech and in music, and for all we know, in dance. It also tracks structure in visual sign language. Um, again, whether you know it or not, whether you're a musician or not, when you hear a piece of music, your brain is trying to figure out what's going to come next. Most music has a pulse. So you usually know when the next event is going to be, but your brain doesn't know exactly what. And a skillful composer and a skillful performer manipulate this. They reward your expectations some of the time. They violate them other times. Now, when the composer can complete a musical idea better than you could have predicted, you know, you're, for, you're forming these predictions about what's going to come next. Uh, if the composer can actually complete a musical idea in a way that you never would have thought of, wow. That is when you really love the song. If the composer can uh, sort of, you're following the, the music, you're following the composer, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. Suddenly you're in a different place than you thought you were going to be, and it feels even better than any place you could have imagined. Mm -hmm. That's when you can love a song for a lifetime. Do you have a song uh, that does that for you? I have hundreds of those. I mean, and I think that's... Particular favorite you could name? Sure. Here? When I listen to Chet Atkins and Lenny Bro play Sweet Georgia Brown, which is, I wouldn't have said would be one of my favorite songs. I mean, it's a good song, but when they play it, there's a moment in there when the guitar is arpeggiating, that is, taking a chord and spreading it out over time. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I hear that, and I get goosebumps every time. 
Well, you're saying that surprise uh, and and defying expectations is an element of musical pleasure, and yet it, it, it would seem that some people like to hear the same old tunes and not be surprised. I mean, classic rock stations cater to, I think, people whose listening tastes were frozen 30, 40 years ago. It would seem like a paradox, right? Yeah. If If the enjoyment comes from surprise, which is, you know, what a lot of theorists and aesthetician, you know, philosophers of aesthetics think, then how is it that the same thing can surprise you over and over again? But before I dive into an explanation, let me try an analogy on you. A lot of people who like Charlie Chaplin can watch him over and over and over again. You see the banana peel come on the screen, you know he's going to slip, right? But it's still funny. Why is that? You gain an appreciation for the subtlety with which he executes the maneuver, even though you know it's coming. In the hands of a master, it feels fresh every time. How could that be? What is the explanation for that? Now that I think if you buy into the analogy that it works in a number of domains. Well, the clue here comes from cognitive psychology, and I apologize for throwing out a buzzword, but the buzzword is schemas. We have schemas which are kind of scripts or or they're like, um, you know, the, the way things typically go. And... When those are violated, that's a surprise. Even if you know it's going to be violated, it's a surprise only in the local sense of that particular mm -hmm. example. It's not a surprise in terms of your life experience and probabilities, right? So, yes, you know Charlie's going to slip on a banana peel, but most of the time people don't slip. It's a, a violation of the schema that most people are able to walk across the street without falling. When we listened to the Beatles yesterday... We have a schema that almost every pop song you've ever heard in your life has eight bar phrases. For the non-technical out there, a, a, a bar is when you're clapping along or tapping your foot. It's when you count one, two, three, four. Uh, and most songs have these groups of four, and there are eight of these before you get to the next part. Every one starts a new bar. Uh, every, yes, every, every one number count. one yeah. starts a new bar. There are yeah. eight of these before you get to the chorus or yeah. to the bridge, to the verse. Now, yesterday has seven bar phrases, not eight bar phrases. Can you count it out for us? Uh, <laughs> yesterday, three, four, one. All my troubles seem so far away. Three bars there. Four bars. While it looks as though they're here to stay. Five. While I, six, three, four, seven, two, three, four. Then you're at the top again. Yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly you, It's a seven-bar phrase. Now, you may not know that consciously. Even though you've heard the, the song yesterday maybe 10,000 times, you know exactly what it's going to do. At a deeper level, it's violating this template your brain has for the eight-bar phrase. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of global surprise, world knowledge surprise that's there every time. And if there's a song that you love, whether it's ZZ Top or Zappa, or whether it's ABBA or Paul Abdul, it's got to be violating some sort of expectation if you love it. Now, we do become accustomed to sounds, and they lose some of their edge, don't they? I mean, sure. you know, The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky caused riots during its debut. Once Upon a Time 
in the say the 70s or 80s punk was considered offensive dangerous scary uh to a lot of people and now you know it could seem almost quaint well, i mean and, and you know uh led zeppelin and the who used to be called heavy metal now they're classic rock they're even <laughs> some some of them are called soft rock well there's this song for example um that in its day probably provoked um you can tell me what kind of reaction it provoked <laughs> this is Rats on High by The Mortals. I played bass for this band in San Francisco in 1982. I thought it was Judy Garland. I thought you guys called yourselves Judy we, uh, Garland. You're right. I think at that point, we, we performed under both names. And we by that by the time we made this recording, you might, your research is probably better than my memory. <laughs> we may have been called Judy Garland at that point. We were together two or three years, and that was a big hit song on um, KUSF and um, for all I know your station played it mm-hmm. I mean, the reaction from the punk community in San Francisco and Santa Cruz at the time was you know it was a song a lot of people liked but I remember my parents and school teachers music teachers just thought it was terrible noise and now I listen to it and it's, it's kind of cute you know yeah. it seems kind of cute in retrospect not no offense intended none taken can we learn? Well, it seems a little bit quaint that somebody would be upset about it. Yes, it does. Because it doesn't seem aggressive anymore. No. Yeah, I think this was. I played with a lot of bands, and I think this was the most talented group of musicians I'd ever played with. It was Alan and Bruce Clement on guitar and drums, brothers uh, Bob on um, vocals, Bob Miller, and I was the bass player. And I, they were just so creative and so marvelously talented. I've never played, with the exception of like having played with you know members of Santana or Whitney Houston's band and things like that. I mean, it, among unknown bands, nobody nearly as talented. And if I, in retrospect, if we had been able to stay together, I think we would have been as big as say the Smithereens <laughs> or the Replacements. <laughs> but can we learn to love anything? Can we learn to call any sound music, or is there a limit? Well, um, time certainly changes our perspective on these things, doesn't it? So the major seven chord, which the Carpenters and Bill Evans and Miles Davis use, that major seven chord is something that sounds kind of vanilla or, you know, kind of almost Muzak-like to many of us. But 100 years ago, it would have been considered dissonant. Mm. Is there uh, a distinction, though, between music and noise? Or is that completely arbitrary? Is it uh, to each his own? For instance, uh, this is noise music from Japan. Okay. Uh, the tune is Metamorphism Part 2 by Mersbo, who's really a leading yep. figure yep. in that movement. Yep. Could a day come when that's perceived as as uh, euphonious? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are concerts even here in the Bay Area by um, composers working in a tradition called acousmatic music or electroacoustic music more broadly, where they take found sounds like jackhammers and people brushing their teeth and, you know, trains rolling down the track, and they manipulate them in a way that gives a total piece, a, a total musical or coll- sound collage, if you want to call it that, a kind of... Um, musical momentum and trajectory, an envelope of tension and release. Uh, 
I think to answer your question, the formal definition or distinction I'd make between music and noise is that anything that's been organized, I would say, is music. Anything that's random is noise. Now, there are going to be gray cases that don't fit either one. But as a rough and ready definition, um, music is organized sound. Noise is disorganization or random sound. And there might be elements of randomness put into music for effect. But ultimately, if it's completely random, it's unlikely that uh, in large doses people are going to consider it music. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong, but that's that's how I feel about it today. Now, what is the relationship between our, our, our processing of music and our mathematical abilities? Music is highly mathematical. At least traditional music is highly mathematical, isn't it? I, I don't know that I would say it's mathematical. Um, I mean, there are some elements of mathematics that are required to describe certain aspects of music, but mm-hmm. that's different than music being mathematical. Mm-hmm. For example, um, most rhythms that we use in music are best characterized by simple integer ratios. That's just a fancy way of saying that most of the time a note is twice as long as another or three times as long as another or four times. Rarely do you have like one note, you know, being seven-thirds as long as another, uh, at least in the terms of notation. By integer, you mean whole numbers. Things yeah. are one or two or three or four times. Yeah the length of, of others. And the acoustics of sound, owing to basically to physics and the way the world is put together, uh, when you look at uh, the sound energy emanating from any instrument, it can also be described by simple integer ratios. So when a saxophone is playing a single note, there are actually other notes being sounded as a property of vibration of the instrument. And those notes are typically described in simple integer ratios. These are overtones. Yeah, exactly. So they are twice, three times, four times, etc., the frequency of the, of the fundamental pitch. Twice, yeah. Uh, in terms of, of musical structure, uh, I think that's, those are the mathematical elements. But usually what people say is that, oh, music is mathematical. A lot of people who are good at music are also good at math. Mm. But I got to tell you, there's a whole mm. lot more who are good at one and not the other. <laughs> So although it does co-occur in some people, it's by no means, you know, a certainty. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to consider what's been happening to music over the last, say, 100 years. And I mean popular music. And uh, I've got a couple pieces picked out here. Okay. Let's start about, uh, oh, uh, mid-1800s with what was probably a chart topper at the time. Little Stephen Foster here. Okay. I dream of Now, we're hearing a lot of melody, very sweet melody, not a lot of rhythm. Let's jump ahead to, say, mid-20th century, singing here by Billy Eckstein. Life is just a bowl of cherries, don't make it serious, life's too mysterious. You work, you save, you worry so, but you can't take your dough when you go. Now, we hear a lot more swing, rhythm. Um, still a nice whistleable melody. Well, you had a big influence starting around the early 1900s of African music. There you go. Now that leads me to my next little data point here. This is James Brown, late 60s, Sex Machine. Yeah. Get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. 
Now what we're hearing is really heavily rhythmic, not a tune that you typically would want to whistle, something you'd want to move your pelvis to. Yeah. And and this is continues with hip hop, which is sure. heavily percussive, heavily yeah. rhythmical. The melody is being de-emphasized, the rhythm, the time relations, the percussion is being emphasized. Stay on the scene. I like a sex machine. I think it would be a mistake to say that this is the direction music is going. Uh-huh. In the sense that that rhythmic kind of stuff, if, if you're trying to say, oh, well, music's getting more rhythmic. Western pop music is what I should have said. Yeah. So the kind of music that, I mean, the kind of music that white middle class people listen to certainly has gotten more rhythmic. Yes. And that reflects an influence of Africa, the Caribbean, um, South America, uh, Latin rhythms are coming into music. So yes, you're absolutely right. But, you know, remember already with um, Scheherazade, with Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, uh, Western composers were experimenting with music of other cultures. Uh, But you're right. In mainstream music, we've seen a steady progression of influence, basically, of, of black music. Certainly not at the expense of melody, generally speaking, although hip-hop is a special case. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's become uh, it's become more and more nuanced, the rhythms that we hear, and, and movement has become acceptable. But knowing what you know, um, as a cognitive psychologist, about uh, the way the brain processes these different elements of music, melody, rhythm, things like that, what do you do? You, do you care to speculate on what the effect of this shift is? Um, this this shift toward rhythm in say Western pop that we're talking about. Well, I can give you a kind of cartographic answer, which okay. is that you know the shift towards rhythm means we're going to have more cerebellar activation ah, and more cerebellum, cerebellum, more activation in the basal ganglia, and in the motor cortex, the parts of your body that are involved in movement. In fact, in our own laboratory, and again with Vinod Menon at Stanford. Every study we've done where somebody was in a brain scanner, we always tell them they have to lie perfectly still or they'll blur the image. It's one of the drawbacks of the technology. But even if they are lying perfectly still, we always, in every case, see enormous activation in those parts of the brain that would normally be involved in movement. The motor cortex, basal ganglia, uh, the, the cerebellum. Why is that? Well, I think it suggests an ancient evolutionary connection between music and movement. We can't stop ourselves from moving. Well, we sort of can, but what's happening is we can't stop those brain areas from firing. We have to actually inhibit the movement. Most people don't know this, but in almost every language there is in the world today, the word for music and the word for dance is the same word. The reason is they don't have to make a distinction because you never have one without the other. Now, some people would say that the more physical and rhythmic music is also more sexual. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that at all. But again, as a, as a neuroscientist, uh, is there a connection in the brain that you can see between music and sexuality? Well, there is an interesting one. Uh, again, Vinod and I did a study we published a couple of years ago where we found that there's a particular part of the brain... Sorry, again, an inelegant name, the nucleus accumbens. (laughs) That sounds kind of sexy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out it is. This is the part of the brain that fires when uh, you take certain drugs, especially the ones that make you feel good, like opium or cocaine, heroin, uh, or when you have an orgasm. This is a part of the brain that 
in response to orgasm, the nucleus accumbens starts to fire, modulates dopamine release in the brain. Dopamine is uh, the hormone that makes you feel good. And we found that when people listen to music they like, doesn't matter what it is, but that gets the nucleus accumbens going. Again, that same part of the brain involved in orgasm. Okay, right? so, so Lawrence Welk and James Brown are equally orgasmic to... To different people. To different yeah. people. <laughs> well, maybe the same person, but yeah. I'm sure that Lawrence Welk was orgasmic to Mrs. Welk. <laughs> Okay, listeners, stay on the scene because I'll be back with neuroscientist and music maven Dan Levitin right after this break. I'm back with Dan Levitin, cognitive psychologist and author of This Is Your Brain on Music. We're discussing the neuroscience of music. Now, we, we talked about some of the sources of music's power, its, its ability to sort of evoke emotion, its ability to stir up memories, and then the, the sexual connection we just made. You and I just made a sexual connection? Oh, please. I asked for a neuroscientist, <laughs> not a comedian. Get out of here. Uh, what about harmony? Harmony can really, really affect us emotionally. When you've got a song yeah. that's going along with a soloist and suddenly a chorus kicks yeah. in, there's a heavy harmony, yeah. can just knock you right back on your heels. What's going on there? You know, this is a really complicated question, and I don't know the answer. Uh, I, th I think just to clarify for our listeners, we usually mean two things by harmony, and it's important to separate those. So one is that, uh, say, the way the Everly Brothers are singing, and one of them is singing the melody, and the other is singing a different part, and we call that a harmony. Usually what musicians mean when they talk about harmony is the chord progression. This is the harmonic motion of the piece, um, the, what the piano might be doing as you're singing above it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a huge context setter. A different set of chords underneath the same melody can make uh, a happy song appear sad or frightening. And we don't really know why all of that is. It seems to be related to some very evolutionarily ancient sense of consonance and dissonance. Uh, and there's this continuum of consonance and dissonance, and you know, harmony can fall anywhere along it. And um, boy, it really is powerful. Yeah. There's a particular part of the brain that's attending to that. But you know, we don't know why it is that certain notes just can make you sad and others can make you feel uplifted or happy or anxious or, you know, you know, like you really want to finish that exercise workout. They give you motivation. It's a good question. What would you say about this piece? You know, Nirvana's most famous piece, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Kurt Cobain singing along, and, and there's a, a certain kind of trance-like quality about the music. And then suddenly, his voice changes, other instruments kick in, and there's just this rush that happens. Can you describe that either musicologically or neurophysiologically that in a way that explains why we get such a kick from that transition there? So you get sort of a rush here because it's just this frenetic punk music thing going on, the distorted guitars. The same guitar is playing two or three times in layers with itself, giving a kind of a brick wall of sound. Now here, it's sort of, this is a cool moment. This is where the trance sets in. Boom, 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 boom. This nice straight eighth note part on the bass. 
The guitar isn't really defining a chord, it's playing just two notes, leaving a lot to the imagination. Two notes, what chord is it? You're not sure. Now you get this kind of electronic effect that's setting something up. You feel that something's about to happen. You're on edge. And then suddenly comes the payoff. Drum roll, cymbal crash, here you are. He's yelling at the top of his lungs. This is the peak of the song. And you sense in that raspy quality of his voice that he's really putting out all that he's got. You're back to that thing that started the song, that huge layer of electric guitars, almost like a Sex Pistols brick wall there. There's this kind of, um, in the electric guitar itself, this sort of squeaky sound of a harmonics, we call it. This comes, it sounds almost like a voice crying. Right? I mean, all of these associations to primitive calls and cries of ancient humans are there when we're using the auditory system. You know, the song evokes kind of an evolutionary or genetic echo of, of grunts and calls. I mean, all music ultimately has to do that. Dan, is there something about the chords that we're hearing? Cobain's voice has a really strange off-key quality to it. Well, what they've done in the hello, hello part is they've spread the pitch around artificially using a pitch shifter so that he's not actually on the note. And it gives you a little bit of a, a kind of an unease because it's a little bit sharp and a little bit flat at the same time, something that could never really happen in the real world. They're exploiting this principle of the brain that, again, even if you're not a musician or a scientist, you don't know this consciously, you're not accustomed to a person being able to hit three pitches at once. But electronically, they spread the pitch of his voice to give you that kind of detuned sound. And that gives you an emotional quality because it makes you feel uneasy. You know, what's interesting, too, is that uh, Tori Amos did a version of this on the piano, just as a, a, a ballad, solo voice and piano. And you would think that all of the emotion in the song comes from that pedal-to-the-metal performance. But what Tori does is uh, she turns, turns this on its ear, this whole notion of pedal-to-the-metal. She gets the same level of emotion, but in a very different way, by holding back. And you can feel her holding back. And the best analogy I can make is that, you know, when you see De Niro... Often, you know, in the movies, he'll, he'll be playing a bad guy. At the moment before he's about to bash in somebody's head with a baseball bat, he's perfectly calm. That's the scariest moment of all. Of course yeah. it is. And you just see his temple throbbing. <laughs> and I had this experience. I was in an elevator once in the building where his office is, and he got in the elevator. <laughs> and we were the two of us just standing in the elevator. We had like eight floors to go up. And I didn't want to stare at him. I didn't want to look at him. But somewhere between the fourth and fifth floor, I look at him out of the corner of my eye, and his temple is throbbing. <laughs> and I almost, <laughs> I almost crapped my pants. And did he say, you looking at me? <laughs> no. That's Joe Pesci, actually, <laughs> oh, who did the you looking at me, right? From uh, What did right? De Niro say? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> there was this moment where, you know, of course, I mean, it was his temple throbs, but you're right. I mean, I, I just thought, man, this is, you know, the rage. But mm, that's what Tori mm, does, which mm, is a, really mm. an, an interesting musical move, is she holds back the emotion, and in the struggle that you hear in her holding it back, you feel the emotion. It's on uh, an EP she made, I think, called Crucify. When 
Studied the emotional cues, at least some of the emotional cues in music in your lab, and 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 some of the pieces you've studied are, are Chopin's nocturnes. For instance, this one is his uh, nocturne number one in F minor. say, I am like a, uh, a conditioned rat when I hear that. It affects me very strongly. Yeah. Makes but, you want to press the bar to get a pellet? <laughs> to get a hanky. Yeah. Um, but uh, you have actually messed with that piece of music. Yeah. And extracted things from it. Yeah. And made it less moving. Yeah. More mechanical. What have you learned from doing that? Well, uh, we've learned a lot. Um, we've learned that people, the average listener isn't as sensitive to these kinds of uh, variations in timing and in loudness of notes that musicians use to convey emotion, particularly on the piano where that's all you got. Uh, Apart from pedaling, all you can do is vary timing and loudness. It's not like the saxophone where you can vary the breathing or the pitch or the, you know, put in a growl here and there. Uh, And musicians are more sensitive than non-musicians to these subtle manipulations or deviations. And um, in general, whether you're a musician or non-musician, um, you're not equally sensitive to manipulations regardless of where they are in the continuum of things. So what I mean by that is that we created a version that has 90% of the expressivity in, in it. And most people couldn't tell the difference between that and 100% expressive. But they could easily tell the difference between 40 and 50 or 50 and 60% expressive. So you're more sensitive in the middle of the range for some reason. Not so surprising, I guess. quantified expressivity. Yeah, we tried to anyway. Wow. Uh, we also found that the function's nonlinear. Uh, you have to have about 60 or 70% expressivity before people feel like you've got 50% expressivity. These are not surprising to a psychophysicist whose job it is to understand how variations in the physical world uh, track in the mental world. We know, for example, if you're looking at a stoplight, the red light and the green light might seem equally bright to you, but that's because the uh, people who made it actually had to put more watts in the green light because we're more sensitive to one band of color than the Mm -hmm, other, mm -hmm. and they can't be actual equal luminance in order to seem equally bright. There are a bunch of nonlinearities in our perceptual system. Well, you you raise the question, I think, of um, perception and reality, and and that comes up in your book uh, quite a bit with relation to music, ways in which we perceive things that aren't actually happening in order to fill in gaps, the ways in which we imagine we're hearing something that's not really happening? You talk about auditory illusions? Well, in, in a sense, almost every piece of music is an illusion uh, or you know, has illusions in it. The, the point here to make is 
that our memory isn't as good as we think it is and our consciousness isn't as accurate as we think it is. Our brain is a very efficient device and although we have the impression that we're aware of everything that's going on, in fact we're not and the brain is making logical inferences all the time, thousands of them every minute, filling in information that's occluded or missing. Most of the time it gets it right. Uh, you go into a psychology laboratory, though, and we show you visual illusions or audit play you auditory illusions, and we can show that you're not getting it right. In the case of music, uh, one illusion is the illusion of the missing fundamental. Um, our hearing doesn't actually go down low enough to hear the bass note in the lowest octave of the piano, uh, but we feel like we're hearing it. Our brain fills in that missing information. Well, why don't we just play that note right now, the lowest note on a piano. Yeah. It'll come through the radio, but a lot of the information will be missing, and people won't notice that it's missing. The It'll... fundamental frequency, the one that we think we're identifying, yeah. is not really there, yeah. but we're filling in that blank. Yeah. Wow, and we're doing a little mathematics to pull that off. Our brains are, yeah. We're hearing the overtones, and we're dividing by some integer yep. to get the, the yep. fundamental. We don't notice it. Our brain fills it in. You, you mention in your book another auditory illusion, not a musical one, but this one shows, again, how the brain fills in gaps, thinks it's hearing things that it really isn't. And uh, let's, let's play that right now. The state governors met with their respective legislatures convening in the capital city. Now, Dan, where was the auditory illusion in that little segment we just heard. Well, this illusion comes from Richard Warren, and most people will hear that there's a kind of burst of static in the middle of the sentence. The interesting thing is that people uh, generally disagree about where the static occurred. They, they don't know which part of the sentence was obscured. It's because the brain so effortlessly fills in a missing syllable. To your brain, you just hear the sentence, and you hear the sort of ch as two separate events, and you don't know where the ch occurred with respect to the sentence. The state governors met with their respective legislatures convening in the capital city. And what actually you're hearing is a sentence where the word legislature had the S physically removed in an editing program. And it's not there. And it's replaced with a burst of noise. And people, if you ask them what word did the um, burst of noise appear in, some people don't even get that it was in the word legislature. They put it in other words of the sentence. And those that do think it was in legislature disagree about which syllable it was in. The state governors met with their respective legislatures convening in the capital city. Now, now you've touched on evolution several times in, in some of your explanations, the evolution of our musical faculties. And I understand there's a little difference of opinion over this between you and your, your rival cognitive psychologist, Steven Pinker of Harvard. He's a guy, he's a language guy. He talks about the language instinct and the language faculty as it evolved. But he says that music is secondary, not particularly useful adaptively speaking, in the Darwinian sense, and then it just sort of piggybacked on our language faculties? You take issue with that? Well, first, I, I wouldn't characterize uh, Steven Pinker as my rival. I just uh, wanted to start something. Come well, on. I mean, Pinker, Pinker is a brilliant <laughs> cognitive scientist, and he's, he's a lot smarter than me. Uh, and he, but he can't play the sax. No, but he, 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 there's no question that he is far more eminent and has done a lot more and more important and more seminal work than I have. Okay. There's no, okay. There's no rivalry there. Right. But it is a difference of opinion. Um, you know, Darwin himself thought that music um, served an evolutionary function and was an adaptation. The interesting thing is this is really a, a kind of technical quibble 
among cognitive psychologists or evolutionary biologists. Nobody believes that music hasn't evolved or that brains haven't evolved along with music. Uh, Pinker acknowledges that. The issue is whether it was, a, technically speaking, an adaptation that is, the, the brain specifically evolved or, you know, natural selection chose music, chose in quotes. And I happen to be persuaded that music is an evolutionary adaptation for a number of reasons. Uh, Pinker thinks not. Uh, it's an interesting question, uh, but as my friend and colleague Dan Dennett says, the more f interesting aspect of the argument really is the point on which we all agree. Music and the brain have co-evolved. And the reason that's interesting is it gives you insight into both. Regardless of whether it started out as an adaptation, which again, I happen to believe it did, uh, the fact is music changed a bit and the brain changed in response to that. And then maybe you know some random mutation gave us a larger frontal lobe and so music could become a little more complicated or a little more dissonant or a little longer in its phraseology. And there is this sequence over tens of thousands of years of, you know, fits and starts of growth on both sides of the brain and music uh, equation. What do we know about animals and their musical facilities or, or lack thereof? Well, this is an interesting and a complicated question. Um, one of the things that characterizes music for us is the octave equivalence. Every human being and every human culture recognizes what you were describing earlier as this ratio of two to one in frequencies. Frequencies of vibration in the physical world. We call it the octave. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, do, do. Those are given the same name because we sense a perceptual similarity. When men and women sing together, without even trying to do so, we sing an octave apart because we have different vocal ranges. Most non-musician men and women wouldn't even know, wouldn't even know they're mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. But that octave is fundamental to our music. Uh, most species of songbird. Uh, don't recognize their song if you transpose it an octave, or transpose it at all for that matter. No animal species has consistently shown an understanding of octaves. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have this recording here. And these are, I believe, uh, chimpanzees. What was that? A <laughs> uh, little humor there. That was the uh, the Nairobi trio uh, uh, from Ernie Kovacs' old TV days. Uh, three chimpanzees ah, okay. doing solfege. Okay. No re me. Um, but no, you're saying that, that that animals, as far as we know, don't have this. We've tried. We've tried to find it. We've tried to find it in in monkeys and apes. We haven't found it. Moreover, the way we use music is different than the way animals use it. We use it for leisure. We use it uh, for um, relaxation, for aesthetic purposes. Um, you know, the closest thing there is to music in the animal kingdom is perhaps birdsong. Birdsong largely, with only a few exceptions, is sung by only the males, and only, and only two circumstances, to defend the territory or to attract a mate. That's not music as we use it, although you know, we might use music to defend territory, as the American army drove Manuel Noriega out and of his compound. I think many, many a rock star would say uh, attracting yeah. a mate was the primary motivation for... The musical career. For the rock star, but when you and I <laughs> listen to music, it's not necessary. So uh, there are a number of ways in which the um, an analogies or parallels don't hold up. So we don't really know what animals are hearing when they listen to our music since they don't have octaves. But there's a lot of research being done on it, and I think in the next five or ten years, we'll know a lot more about it. You were a, a record producer in San Francisco back in the, the 80s. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you produce records by Stevie Wonder, Santana, Steely Dan, 
Well, I, I don't want to overstate my role here. I was uh, I was a contributing producer to um, uh, Chris Isaac record. Uh-huh. Uh, in the case of Steely Dan, I was uh, just a consultant on the CD remastering. In the case of Stevie Wonder, I, I did help him to produce a Greatest Hits record, but that didn't involve actually recording him or coaxing performances. It involved us sitting around on the floor listening to a bunch of records of his and trying to figure out which ones would be on the package. But okay, we'll, down- fair enough. we'll downgrade you, but you were somewhere in the credits way down on the list. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, though, if you, having studied music now as a neuroscientist, if you were to go back to music production, record production... Oh, I still do produce, You still fact, do it? Yeah. Has it changed the way you produce? No. <laughs> I, I pro- I'm, a, I'm a better producer now than I was 20 years ago, but I think everybody who produces is. But I produced uh, three albums in the last two years, and um, no, the neuroscience hasn't changed it, but I'm a better listener of, than I used to be, and that's just time. Well, Dan Levitin, it's been a pleasure listening to you today. It's been my pleasure to be here. Dan Levitin is a professor of psychology at McGill University, where he directs the Laboratory for Music Perception, Cognition, and Expertise. 